Welcome to this APQC podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lauren Trees, and I'm here with APQC Chairman Carla O'Dell. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Carla. And we've both been deeply involved in knowledge management for a long time. Carla really since the the beginning of the term knowledge management sometime deep in the 90s. And we're also both news junkies. So I thought it would be fun to look at some news stories together and tease out the knowledge management angle, because the more you get into KM, the more you see it everywhere. And the story that I want to tackle today is the current microchip shortage and everything that it's revealed about the global microchip market, which uh, I and probably a lot of us were previously blissfully unaware of. So for any of you who haven't been following this, supply chain disruptions, delayed ordering due to COVID, combined with increased demand for gadgets, because we've all been at home during the pandemic, buying new video game consoles. And then as if we needed more issues, the rise of cryptocurrency mining, which requires a lot of chips, all these different factors have come together to create this massive microchip shortage. And we're seeing this play out in a lot of ways, but mostly limited supply, long waiting lists, and higher prices for everything from cars to washing machines. Because of course, everything we own has a microchip in it these days. And as a consumer, it's easy for me to say, well, just go make more chips. That's supply and demand. That's how the global economy works, right? But chip making is this massively complex process. It can take up to six months and hundreds of people to make a microchip. The facilities are incredibly expensive to build and maintain. I think the newest ones cost $20 billion with a B and they have to be kept cleaner than an operating room. And even if you have the right factories, the right equipment, you need something called process knowledge to actually make these chips correctly. There are hundreds of complex process steps involved in the manufacturing and one speck of dust in the air or other tiny deviation can create malfunctions in the finished product. And over the last 30 years, a lot of chip production has shifted to Asia, particularly Taiwan, and particularly to this one company, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC. And this company, TSMC, makes about 55% of the world's chips right now. And, and it's one of the only manufacturers that can make the kind of advanced chips that are needed for things like AI that we need more and more of. And the extent of this consolidation feels like a bit of a mess to me, especially when you look at the potential geopolitical risk. And COVID has also forced companies to rethink these ultra lean supply chains and single source suppliers. We've been talking about that a lot. But even if you accept that you wanna diversify chip manufacturing, it's really hard because of the amount of process knowledge involved. So Carla, I know that you've thought a lot about process knowledge over the last 25, 30 years. So I wanted to bring you in to kind of think through this issue and, and think about the lessons that knowledge management can provide here potentially. Well, Lauren, I just think it's amazing that it's the semiconductor issue again, because 25 years ago, this was the issue that catapulted knowledge management into the forefront as a management technique. It was a semiconductor shortage. One of the major manufacturers was Texas Instruments. 
And they were, it's a, uh, this whole industry is a boom and bust cycle. Now the boom that we're going into right now, it, the bust we went through and the boom we went, we're going through now and will continue for a while are, you know, they amplified enormously over the normal. But back then it was a huge issue. Every day that you can't supply those semiconductors, millions of dollars are lost. Back then it only cost a billion dollars to build a new fabrication plant. So things have changed just a little bit since then. So it's even worse. So the uh, Texas Instruments was headed by a gentleman named Jerry Junkins at the time. And he, he was the president and he said, we, while we're building this new facility, we have got to get more production out of what we have right now. And if you're uh, working anywhere <laughs> in the world right now, with a high demand, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So this issue applies to you, whether you're in semiconductors or not. So they knew they, uh, so to be able to increase demand, he tried a number of things. One of which was looking at the barrier, I mean, increased supply. One of which was to look at the barriers that were keeping knowledge and supply from flowing. It turns out in this case that eliminating the barriers is the first thing you do. He found that it was the incentive system. Right now, there were 12 fabrication plants. Every plant manager and staff was rewarded on the production of their own plant. So when he got rid of that and made them all get bonuses based on the, the overall production, what it did was eliminate the barriers to knowledge, one of the barriers to knowledge sharing. Then the others came up. And what they found was that they needed to have relationships between people, peers at these various plants who could share the knowledge that they had gained. The first they had to have data. You know, the plan in Akron, Ohio um, is doing better on this process than the other 11 plants, the fabrication facilities. And so they'd identified like the, what they thought their biggest gain opportunities were. And they brought the experts and the people who owned those processes together to share knowledge. So that they didn't have the digital options that we have now, they had the telephone. So, but they would hold meetings. Remember those things, face-to-face -face meetings, and uh, which will someday resume. And um, and so those meetings is where knowledge began to flow. Then they found that, in fact, you you couldn't transfer a process just by telling somebody about it. That you had to be available as an expert coach. And so the transfer of knowledge and best practices required eliminating the barriers, access to the knowledge, and access to experts who could help you adapt it to your current situation. They were able to create in less than six months, the additional capacity of one fabrication plant. So they were producing at the level of 13 rather than 12 within six months. And you know, Lauren, the Texas Instruments semiconductor shortage story was one of the seminal stories of the early knowledge management days. You can read all about it in the book that Jack Grayson and I wrote called, If Only We Knew What We Know. And that's a available, you know, through APQC or Amazon. And that's incredible. And I think that there's huge implications for the short-term crisis that we can, that can be leveraged there. But I'm, I'm also curious about the, the longer range issues, because I feel like there's huge economic incentives for this incredible specialization, but now we're seeing the risks involved in that and maybe wanting to diversify that. So as other companies, other countries want to build 
build up some of this knowledge that they either lost or, or never had, um, you know, especially when some of that knowledge is tacit and, and really requires that expertise. What do we know in knowledge management that could help companies who maybe don't have that level of expertise or who've let it drop off as things have been outsourced and, and offshored to, to rebuild or build that knowledge base? Yeah, I think we're going to face that here. I'll, I'll jump in with a couple, Lauren, and you, you've thought a lot about this as well. There's always the issue when it comes to anything, including the asset called knowledge, any asset, is do you make it or do you buy it? And the fastest way, of course, is to buy it by either uh, incentivizing existing facilities and giving them more money, which is what the public sector funds are going to help us do. Um, but they, uh, you can also... Um, build it, which is your point. How do you build that kind of knowledge? You still got to have access to what I call the seed corn, the corn that you're, when that seed corn that you're going to use to grow the next crop. And that seed corn is, is knowledge usually inherent tacitly in a lot of experts. And, and those people, you either convene them across locations and find them, uh, or again, you go back and you buy them. Uh, if you, uh, what would you do, Lauren, if you had a few people who had this kind of knowledge? How would you grow it? If they were your seed corn, what would you do? It's a challenge, but I think you have to look at it on two fronts. In knowledge management, we're always trying to document what can be documented, but also recognize that some things are best transferred between individuals. So I think with your seed corn, if you're able to grab a few experts or people who are even at the expert level who want to help you develop and create this new knowledge, I feel like you've got to capture what they know in some process documentation, attach that to the process so that it's replicable and documented if, if those people walk out the door, but also look at all of the ways for knowledge elicitation and transfer between people, whether that's expert masterclasses, virtual or in person, whether that is some sort of teaching environment, uh, you know, training environment, job shadowing, um, you know, I, I think depending on the scenario and especially when you think about something like how do you make a microchip without getting a speck of dust into a room, I'm not a scientist, but that sounds like something that you really need to show people. Um, it feels like a, you know, QVC demonstrable kind of skill that, that you want to, to show. And so I feel like as much as you can get the person with the knowledge together with the people who need the knowledge and really get them working side by side so they can get that kind of training, uh, the, the better off you're going to be. And I think you're absolutely right. And the collaboration and transfer needs to happen all along the, the chain, not from the people who design the facility to those who mock up the first, and then all of the various, the ventilation systems, right, which we're all aware of. And then all the other issues, all those folks have to be in the room, as it were, at some, and especially if you're going to build a facility or expand a facility you've got. And bringing them together virtually or face-to-face, -face, I think, is an enormous uh, benefit in terms of not the speed of, uh, of knowledge flow and the um, completeness of the knowledge and the buy-in, too. Don't forget the buy-in part. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and then one other thing that I'll mention here is that 
the knowledge is not going to provide the value you want unless it's accessible at the point of need. So not only do you need to document it, and I think that's particularly important with some of this knowledge that maybe you're not going to use immediately or, you know, you don't know. I feel like there are companies who maybe knew how to do this in the West 20, 30 years ago and have lost some of that knowledge. And if it had been better documented, obviously there's updates, the technology has changed, but there's probably also nuggets that would be really valuable right now, but probably walked out the door with people who have long since retired that if that knowledge had been documented and made easily accessible, then that might be a starting place that that doesn't exist right now. Um, you know, because because the knowledge flow is important. And if you don't have the relevant knowledge associated with those very complicated process steps and a good taxonomy to connect those, I, I think that you can end up with a repository full of stuff that people can't find and can't use. Mm -hmm. I agree. And that, yeah, you're right. Access is incredible. The find, being able to find it, you, you're our resident expert right now on content management. So uh, I defer to your greater wisdom on that. It is really searches the, you know, well, you've written quite a bit about this. Well, and if you look at the challenges organizations are having, it's not so much the search technology, it is information stored in silos or in accessible locations and confusion about where knowledge is stored. They're not search algorithm problems, they're disparate system and human confusion problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that when you get into a process as complex as making microchips, that becomes even more apparent and relevant. You've got, you've got to deal with that. I want to circle back to something that you said, because you were talking about buy-in and, and earlier we were talking about incentives. So from a, from a KM perspective, is there anything that organizations need to be doing or looking at um, in terms of incentives to protect and, and evolve their process knowledge, whether they make microchips or, or any other kind of complex process that involves that kind of, of knowledge? Well, I'm very leery of the unintended consequences of extrinsic motivation. I mean, you need to pay people fairly and reward them uh, appropriately, but doing that in a collaborative way is almost always going to be a better outcome. And uh, it's, I would say strengthening the intrinsic motivation uh, or making it possible for that to uh, blossom in people is really important. So let me make that specific. For example, in this kind of knowledge, you're talking about very, very specialized uh, intellectual capital that a human being is developing, right? And the opportunity to work with other experts, the opportunity to be acknowledged for the, the knowledge that you've got, uh, and for to be able to use it is a, and learn and to get better at it is powerful. There's nothing more delightful than, than learning uh, when it isn't forced, when it's really when you want to. So those are, I think, the intrinsic motivators uh, have to do with the uh, social uh, and cultural environment, making that really, um, you know, leaders saying, I want to thank everybody who created this uh, phenomenal piece of information that we needed. And, you know, treating and acknowledging that is really, really important in creating that cultural norm and promoting those people who do the same. 
Absolutely. And I also think that something that's so important to experts is that they want to be on the top of their field and they want to be pushing the envelope of their discipline. And so if you're not giving experts an opportunity to move the needle and to innovate and to create new knowledge at the edge of what mm -hmm. they're currently doing, um, that, that that's a big part of the motivation as well. So both creating that knowledge and then moving that knowledge into your, your knowledge flow and your knowledge funnel and cascading it to other people is all really important. Um, and sometimes organizations can lose sight of that. If you hire the best experts in the world and you expect them to kind of sit like cogs in a wheel and continue to do the same thing over and over again, um, nobody wants to work for the third best company at X. They want to work for the best or they want to strive towards that. And, and giving people that opportunity to innovate and create new knowledge is critical, not just to the business, but also to the, the maintenance of those experts and their incentives um, to, to stick with you and to do their best work. That's right. And to build on that, I think it's all along the knowledge chain. It's novices and experts and experts. They all want the same thing. And the challenge is always balancing the, the novices need to ask questions that annoy <laughs> the expert or bore them, which is where the access to documented knowledge can help fill that gap versus the uh, opportunity to learn together. And I think you want to attract novices because the demographics of the world and, you know, in the U.S., certainly in the Western world, are such that you really need to develop the, new, uh, the novices and the newcomers into the workforce as quickly as you possibly can. Other parts of the world, which is where you're also going to want to work, uh, have a, a better supply. Their demographic hump is, is uh, younger than in the Western countries. So again, focus on those folks, but growing that human supply chain of experts is essential. And what a great opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think you can underestimate the power of inspiration in helping the organization and, and helping knowledge flow and, and bringing bringing inspiration to the next generation of experts and experts is critical to protecting and evolving your process knowledge. I agree. And fun to do too. Let's not forget it's fun. Yes, we always get to how KM is going to be fun, right? All, all roads lead to if you're, if you're laughing, you're learning, and, and that's crucial to managing your knowledge. So thank you for joining us for APQC's podcast and please go to apqc.org to learn more.